Praise team, thank you very much. One of the most important things about us is our worship. And that's why worship is not just something we kind of put on the front end of a service. It's a very, very, very significant part of what we do. Uh, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 is where that great hymn comes from. Right? Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, but in the midst of all of that, proclaiming God's faithfulness. All right, open your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel 25. I know that says 1 Samuel 27. That's really part of my title. And you've got some notes, trust and obey. David said to himself, we're going to find David talking to himself today. You ever talk to yourself? How many of us talk to ourselves? Uh, I see some hands that aren't up. I, I don't believe I, I talk to myself all the time. I, I get into trouble with what I say to myself. You do that? And that's what we're going to find with David. Nancy, you're all like, yeah, you're getting, yeah, you're getting trouble. Uh, that's what we're going to find with David. He gets in trouble. Tells himself the wrong things. But yesterday, a group of us went into the neighborhoods. And let me encourage you to join us. Uh, we, we had a great time yesterday. Went back into Dollarton Circle, and uh, one of the houses we went to had this at the door. I found it rather comical, so I took a picture of it. No soliciting. We are too broke to buy anything. We know who we are voting for. We have found Jesus. And seriously, unless you are selling thin mints, please go away. All right? So we left. I should give you the address and tell everybody to knock on their door and sell Thin Mints. That would be very interesting, wouldn't it? Huh? Uh, I don't have a lot of takers on that, I don't think. All right, here I mentioned uh, the birth last week of our grandson, Bennett. And uh, so here is a picture of Bennett Joel Gaither. And uh, that was, I think, the day after he was born. He was born a week ago, and then... Here is him when he got his first bath. Life is kind of rough, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was Thursday or Friday, maybe Friday or Sunday, maybe yesterday. When was it? Yesterday? Yesterday. I want to use this as a springboard, though, to pray for our men. It's Father's Day, and uh, many here are fathers. You Obviously, I had a father, and many are fathers, and some, like myself, have the privilege of being a grandfather. And so, men, how many of you you would like prayer for your responsibilities? All right, if you didn't put your hand up, we'll uh, ask God not to bless your life in this, but I'll take all the prayer I can get, amen? Yeah. Father, we cry out to you. It's a privilege to be a dad. It's the greatest privilege we have to call you our father. And that's already been emphasized that we can call you father. Thank you for speaking light into the darkness of our hearts, of adopting us into your family, of blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And Father, I pray for our fathers, that those blessings would just thrill them, fill their minds and become their greatest thoughts, their greatest desires. Because a dad who has those thoughts and those desires, I think out of that will lead well in the home. So we pray that we couldn't pray anything better probably for our men. We all want that kind of favor and blessing. Pray for our men. As Paul said that they'll love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
and that they'll raise their children in the admonition and nurture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for our men, our fathers, that their home and their children will bring them great delight. Father, we cry out to you. And that, Father, I know there are fathers here whose children are not walking with you. We pray for them. Because I know that's their greatest desire. To see our children love you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We cry out to you. Father, thank you for our men that are here and our homes that are represented. The marriages. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so you should have your Bibles out, notes in front of you. And you know we're studying the life of David. And I said if I were to write a play, I probably would have four acts in that play from the life of David. Act one, his rise to prominence. And under that, we'd see uh, his anointing by Samuel, his defeat of Goliath. He's coming to a place of prominence in Saul's army. And then Act 2, where we find ourselves now, David's life on the run. Some 12, 13 chapters in 1 Samuel given over to his life on the run. And then 2 Samuel, the first part of the book, the first 10 chapters on David's rule as Israel's greatest king. First over the southern tribe, tribes, and then over all of Israel and consolidating his rule in Jerusalem. And he will be given a covenant by God. Oh, set the whole course, really, of salvation history. And then finally, the remorse. David uh, and his sin with Bathsheba. Bad choices. So four acts, and right now we're looking at Act 2. David's life on the run, and he's fleeing from Saul. That's the idea, life on the run, fleeing from Saul. Saul wants David dead. Because he fears that this young upstart, this giant killer, this guy with such great popularity is going to usurp and take his throne. And so he wants him dead. And so David is on the run. And I really think it's hard for us to gain some sense of of these years in his life. The struggles. Eight years David flees from Saul. And he's going from place to place. I put up a map when we started talking about these things to show you all the different places he went to. Many of them desolate places. And then he's leading a large group. It isn't just David on the run trying to find a place to hide. He has a band of some 600 men and their wives and their children. So there's probably at least a couple thousand people that he's responsible for. And then the betrayal, different cities, in particular Keilah. He was betrayed twice to his life on the run. This is a real struggle. And so far I've preached three messages out of this act in David's life. First of all, we talked of the fact that godly people do have troubles. Saul was David's enemy continually. David, though he had been anointed to become the next king of Israel... Finds himself having all kinds of troubles as Saul was out to kill him. And then my second message was God is at work in our troubles. Oh, I liked that message. Remember we talked about sparrows. God even knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. Divine providence. Saul sought David every day, but God did not deliver him into his hands. God orchestrating the affairs of 
David's life. And then last Sunday, we talked about David's faith in the midst of his troubles. How encouraging, isn't it, to see David in the midst of his troubles demonstrating faith. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And today we're going to learn more about the context of that statement. You're going to find it very, very interesting. And so last week we looked at the upside of David's faith. The upside. The fact that he waited on God. He worshipped God. But this morning we're going to look at the downside. The downside of of David's faith. David said to himself. That's chapter 27, verse 1. He's talking to himself and he doesn't do well. And so today we're going to talk about David's faltering, failing faith. David's faltering, failing faith. This is Florence Chadwick. In 1952, she attempted to swim some 26 miles from Catalina Island to the California coast. 26 miles. She was a great swimmer, like oceans, uh, open water swimming. So she went, and, and there were several boats that accompanied her, her mother evidently in one of them, and others there to scare away sharks or to assist if there was fatigue or injury. And when she left the island, there was a thick fog. I believe the distance was 22 miles. How many of us have ever swam competitively? All right, a few of us. Is 22 miles a long ways, Brent? It's a long ways. She was 15 hours into her swim. 15 hours. And she started to to grow discouraged. And her mother encouraged her to continue on. But after about another hour, she said, you need to take me out of the water. When she ended up in the boat, she realized evidently that she was only about one mile from the coastline. And she evidently quit because she could not see the coastline. And she had this to say, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the land, I might have made it. Well, if I could have just seen the land, I might have made it. This morning, we're going to see from David's life that he got fogged in. David got fogged in and he lost sight of who his God was and the promises his God made to him. And David quits. He wants to quit. He has a faltering, failing faith. That's David. Now, I think that this message is so relevant for us. So relevant. David was a godly man. We know that, right? When we think of David, the greatest king Israel ever had. He was anointed by Samuel. He was a man after God's own heart. He was a psalmist. He became Israel's greatest king, given covenant promises. And yet he struggled. At times, David had this faltering, failing faith. And so I ask a question of you, and you don't have to answer it because I already know the answer. Do you struggle in your faith? 
And I know the answer is yes. If you're like me, cut out of the same kind of human cloth I am, you struggle in your faith. Maybe especially when you hit great difficulties, but it doesn't take much at all. A little bit of choppy waters, and I'm struggling with my faith. And don't put on some pompous, uh, you know, face like, not me, I never struggle with my faith. I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. We struggle with our faith, do we not? Go ahead. You'd help your neighbor out if you raised your hand because, see, that's my great encouragement to say, David struggled with his faith. You struggle with your faith. Can we find some encouragement and help in all of that? That's what we want to see. Right? Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at two examples from David's life on the run, Act 2, where he's struggling with his faith. It falters. It fails. And the first one is in chapter 25. So if you want to turn there, I've already asked you to turn there. Nabal, David, and Abigail. Well, we need to understand the setting. What is the setting? Well, verse 1 starts out telling us this. Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for Samuel. And buried him at his house in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Uh, this, this is significant. Samuel dies. Who is Samuel? Well, he's the old prophet. Uh, the nation mourns. The nation gathers to mourn. But what about David? So you see, Samuel was the one who anointed him. You've got to know that he found great hope in Samuel and in his life. And he may be thinking, now what? The prophet's gone. He's died. Yeah. Our writer wants us to know that that's part of the setting and then we're told that David does what? He flees down to the wilderness of Paran. I've been down in that area. Here's a pretty good picture of that area. I'm not going to say all of it, but a lot of it in the Negev, in the south of, of Israel, is challenging country, desert. And so this is where David finds himself in a setting like this. And he has to be providing for a couple of thousand of people. You think it's challenging? Look to your neighbors. They say, boy, this is challenging. This is challenging. We in modern-day America, if you stuck us in that desert, we probably wouldn't make it. Wouldn't make it out alive. They stuck us in there for a few days. We, we probably couldn't even find our way out of it, let alone survive in the midst of it. And so Nabal, who lives in this area, actually his city is, Mount, is Carmel, which is in the northern part, but... Nabal's shepherds are shearing his sheep. All those S's. Nabal's shepherds are shearing his sheep. And so David sends two, ten of his young men up to Nabal at Carmel to ask for food. And David's thinking is this. We have been protecting Nabal and his men and his livestock. Protecting his sheep. And so now at this time, when they're shearing the sheep, he should help us. He should show some appreciation. All right? Do you understand the setting? What's, what's going on? And Nabal's response basically is, you got to be kidding me. That's it. Go ahead. Read the Hebrew. It's close. And in essence, he says, you've got to be kidding me. Who is this young upstart David, this rebellion, rebellion, against, rebellion against his master? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. 
scaring the kid. But I'm not going to calm down. <laughs> and so David's angry. David is angry. And David says to 300, 400 of his men, he says, guys, or maybe 300, I don't know the exact number, hundreds of them. He says, look, guys, strap on your swords because Nabal's a dead man. That's what he says. He's dead. Notice verse 21, David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemy of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. He's dead. His family. Is David angry? Well, what happens is, is Abigail learns of what's transpiring. Nabal's wife, Abigail, she didn't know about it. And when some of the servants tell her, she says, we've got to do something about this. And so she has all of this food she takes down and tries to intercept David, and she's successful. She's trying to stop David. Now, she doesn't know David's plans, really. And here we go. This is verse 23 of chapter 25. Read along with me. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. So it's interesting. She accepts the responsibility for what had happened. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. What does the name Nabal mean? Senseless, foolish. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand. Now that's underlined for a reason. We'll talk about it here in a moment. Now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And, and when the Lord does for my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and appoints you ruler over Israel. So she's affirming here, is she not, that David is going to be king. This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by not having shed blood without cause, and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who sent you to this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from what? Avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. And there's a lot here. We just read how many verses. 
But what we want to try to understand is the writer's intent. What is the main idea? Why are we given this story? Right? That's what we should be asking. All kinds of stories out of the life of David. Why this one? And I think the key is found in the word hand. Hand. There's a clear contrast in the story of Nabal and the stories that precede it and follow it. In chapters 24 and 26, David spares Saul's life. And we repeatedly find the phrase, we repeatedly find the phrase, we repeatedly find the phrase that he would not stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed. Notice 24 verse 6, but there are some five times we find this idea. So David said to his men, this is at En Gedi, David's in the cave, right? And they want him to kill him. And David said, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To what? To stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. Time after time we find that that statement in chapter 24 and chapter 26. And the idea is this, that David waited upon God. In those settings, when he could have taken Saul's life, David would wait upon the Lord and not take matters into his own hands. That's the idea. I emphasized it last week. And there we find David in faith, not stretching out his hand against the Lord's anointed. But that's not the case with Nabal. You see, there's a contrast going on. David is going to avenge himself with his own hand. You see, we find that idea in his own hand. And so in chapter 25, verse 26, this kind of statement, Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. And so we see David here in this context with Nabal, his faltering, failing faith. Because in his anger, as he's all worked up over Nabal's response to his request for some help, David wants to what? He wants to avenge himself by his own hands. David now wants to take matters into his own hands. He's going to seek revenge. That's David. And so this contrast, so strong in his faith, when it comes to Saul, chapter 24, chapter 26, but with Nabal, there is this faltering, failing faith. I hope I have you convinced. And I hope you go back and you read it and and you look for clues in in the passage to understand why is our writer doing this and juxtapositioning these stories. And I think that's it. It has to do with David's hand. Waiting on the Lord in one instance, but in the other instance, uh, taking matters into his own hands. And you know what? I'm convinced that we can relate. We can relate to David. We're wronged. And in our anger, we want to do what? Is he all right, John? Good. We're wronged. And in our anger, what do we want to do? You know what you want to do. You want to take matters into your own hands. Come on now, talk to me. 
I'm, of the, I'm cut out of the same cloth. I, I've said that already. Uh, I know what it is to be human and to be wronged and want to take matters into my own hands. Well, let's just make this very practical. Say, say somebody wrongs you at church. Oh, you've been wronged at Charleston Bible Church, and, and so you're going to take matters into your own hands. Right? You see, these don't have to be big episodes in our lives. We, 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 we're so sinful, we'll take matters into our own hands, and they're very small matters. And it doesn't take something like David, who's been so wronged and, in those kind of circumstances. It doesn't take much at all for us to take matters into our own hands, does it? You're kind of looking at me, well, I, I think that's where we live, isn't it? Yep. It doesn't take much at all for us to be at that place. We're going to take matters into our own hands. So what would we do in the church? We're kind of bothered by somebody. They've wronged us. And so what we'll do is we'll just, I'm not going to speak to them anymore. I'll just not speak to them. I'll gossip. I'll go tell somebody else about the problem I have with the person at the church. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Or if push comes to shove, I'm just going to leave the church. I'm just going to leave the church over that. You see, all those kind of small responses are us taking matters into our own hands, aren't they? They're not the biblical response which calls for love and patience and trying to work out our differences. They're just simple ways that when we're angry, we're offended, we're going to take matters into our own hands. I struggle with this. I'm just wanting to be so transparent with you. and I think you struggle with the same things. Yep. A faltering, failing faith. And brothers and sisters, it don't take a lot for our faith to falter, does it? It doesn't take a lot at all. You know, it's not like, boy, I'm so faithful, and boy, it has to be some huge thing in my life to cause my faith to falter, to fail. No, 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 no. No. This is the stuff of life, isn't it? Yeah. Now, what is fascinating, we need to take a look at our second story where his faith falters and fails. But what is fascinating in this story of, of Nabal, and you need to read it. You, got, you should, oh, let me encourage you to read these stories. But we find this phrase, the Lord has restrained you. Absolutely amazing. Some three times, chapter 25, verse 26, verse 34, and verse 39. And I, I'm just saying this parenthetically, and you can go look at it, but we find here divine providence. That God is protecting David from his own foolishness. Aren't you thankful that God's like that? We find that phrase three times in here. David set on taking Nabal's life, and we're told that God restrained him. The Lord has restrained you, stopped you from following your foolishness. I'm thankful for a merciful God like that. Because if I followed my ways all the time when I was a little bit angry, well, I'd be in deep weeds. I wouldn't probably be up here preaching. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Who said amen so excited? Baby? <laughs> Turn to chapter 27. Let's look at a second example of David's faltering, failing faith. In chapter 27, David flees to Gath. And so we need to know the setting. What is going on in David's life? Well, he's in the wilderness of Ziph. Here we find him again in the wilderness. Folks, I just know myself. I know if you stuck me out in the wilderness for three or four days, I would be a crotchety old man. Wouldn't you? 
Yeah, and so he's living year after year in these kind of contexts. I'd be crotchety and angry all the time. Some of you are thinking, well, you're that way already. See, it doesn't take much to get me there. He's in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul's hunting him. And David spares Saul's life. We saw that twice, chapter 24, chapter 26. David says, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's chapter 26, and it's interesting. There we have that great demonstration of faith. But I believe we see in chapter 27 that David becomes discouraged and tired, maybe even fearful. He starts talking to himself, and he makes some bad choices. That's chapter 27. His faith is faltering, failing. And maybe it has to do with Saul's endless pursuit of him. Yes, he's been delivered now in chapter 26, but, but this ongoing dynamic. Or maybe it's just the fact that the, the chronic nature of it's year after year after year. Or maybe it's the fact that I got all these people telling me they need my help. We need food. My kids are crying themselves to sleep. I am sick and tired of it. Do you think David got there? I kind of sort of believe that's where he's at here. Uh, Have you ever been there yourself? That's another dumb question. I know the answer. The answer is sure you have. You're growing tired and discouraged in your faith as you seek to be the person God would have you be. But you find yourself having financial struggles and it's one struggle after another and you think you're just getting uprighted and then your car breaks and your transmission goes. And Gabe, that ain't cheap, is it? That ain't cheap. So so maybe it's an area of finances or our health. Or there are many here who who have serious health issues. And and so their faith as they work through that, it would be the danger in all of it to be discouraged and tired. Or maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're sick and tired of trying to be the person God would have you be in your marriage. I want out. I'm tired of it. How many would raise your hand and say, I've been there a time or two? Yeah. See, I'm, I'm trying, I want us to raise our hands because you need to look around and see that people struggle with their faith just like you do. You know, we can come in on a Sunday morning, but we got a big smile and we look pretty nice. I, you know, here I come in, and I got a nice coat and tie and I look pretty nice. I got a big smile. You may think, you know, Pastor Joel never struggles with his faith. Excuse me? Doesn't take me at all, much at all to be struggling with my faith. To be having these thoughts, and you're there repeatedly. You've been there repeatedly this week when something hits the fan, and in your thoughts, you're grappling with your trust in God and all of it. Can I hear an amen? amen? Yep. And so David flees Israel. He leaves the land of Israel for the land of the Philistines. He just wants relief, I believe. I need Saul to stop pursuing me. This is getting tired. This is getting old. And so we read this in chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said to himself, see, he's talking to himself. Now I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. And so David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoth, king of Gath. 
Well, what do you remember about Gath? That's where Flip, uh, Goliath was from. He's already been to Gath, and what did he have to do? He had to feign insanity and make it out with his life, but he's back at Gath. Yep. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, uh, Hinnom, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. And so indeed, Saul's going to pull back. But isn't that the way it is sometimes when you walk out of God's will, there's relief? Right? You're in a bad marriage, and you pull back. There's relief. It's an immediate relief. It doesn't mean that it's been handled God's way. It just means that there's relief. Back to my example with the church. You leave the church, there's relief. But it doesn't mean it's God's way, right? Yep. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country. That I may live there, for why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag. That day, and therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. This is the only time indicator I think we find in his life, in Act 2, his life on the run. But to me, it's very sad where David finds himself here in his faltering, failing faith. He finds himself out of the land of Israel in Philistine territory. He's living in Ziklag. And from Ziklag, if we were to read on, or in this story, it tells us he made raids on groups like the Gerizites and the Amalekites. So he's in Ziklag making raids on some of these cities, these people. But he has to lie about it to Achish, the king of Gath, because Achish thinks that David is making raids on the Jews. So he's got to lie to cover up his actions. And not only does he have to lie, and this is sounding awful familiar, isn't it, to what we'll find about Bathsheba. But he lies, but he also has to kill. You see, he's got to kill all the inhabitants of the cities that he takes for fear that one of them would get back to Achish and tell him what's going on, the truth of what's going on. It's sad, isn't it? To find David where he is at at this point with his faltering, following faith. And perhaps most telling in the story, and I keep encouraging us to read our passages, there is no mention of God in this entire chapter. No mention of God. I think that's very telling. So David's faltering, failing faith. Now I'm not wanting you to leave here discouraged this morning. Throw up your hands and say, boy, if he struggled, where's the hope for me? I want to apply these ideas to our lives because I think there's actually a lot of encouragement here. Application number one would be this. Don't think you're the only one who struggles with your faith. To me, that's, that's very encouraging. I'm not the only one who struggles with my faith. David did. He was a godly man, anointed by Samuel, a man after God's own heart, the, the great psalmist, Israel's greatest king would become on to be their greatest king, given covenant promises, and yet David struggled being a man of faith. I think that's important for us to understand. Because if we think no one else struggles like we do, no one else struggles like I do. If we think that way, we can become discouraged. Right? We, we can think, why am I the only one who seems to struggle with my faith? 
You know, I look at people that come to church and they seem all together, and yet I almost stayed home today because I'm sick and tired of what's taking place at work, and I wanted to sleep in, and I really wanted to go down to the ABC store and get a bottle of liquor and drown my, my sorrows in that. Because I come to the church and everybody seems to have their, you know, everything all together. How, how many of you think you got your life all together? Oh, nobody's willing to raise their hand. I'll put my hand up. I struggle. Yeah. And I'll bet you a hundred bucks if I went to your house and listened to some of the stuff you said in difficult circumstances, right away I'd check that one off and say they struggle with their faith. They all have gotten so quiet all of a sudden. What's up? <laughs> to understand that you're not the only one who struggles with your faith. We think no one else struggles like we do. We, we can. What we can do is we can have our little pity party. Uh, that's another way we can respond. We can, we can say, you know, nobody has it as hard as I do. You know, nobody's got it as bad as I do. I, I really feel sorry for myself. Well, I'm telling you, it just ain't so. Others struggle with their challenges, with their problems. So, so I, I think that's a real encouragement to know that other people struggle. We like to see it when they are strong in their faith, but we need to know that they struggle in their faith because if we didn't know that they'd struggled, we'd think, hey, there's something wrong with me, and there may not be anything at all wrong with you. You're just trying to live a life of faith in a very difficult and fallen world. Right? Yeah. Application number two. This may be the most important one. You need to watch how you talk to yourself. Uh, I'm talking to myself all the time, and I know you do too, right? I get out of bed. I'm starting to say some things. If I'm doing well, you know, it may be a very spiritual thing. Or if there are things that are bothering me, I may get in the shower. And I don't know if you shower when you get up. That's about the first thing I do after putting on the coffee. But I know that I'm having all these different self-thoughts, and it's very important what I'm thinking when I'm in the shower. Because it amazes me where my thoughts can take me. Who, who, I'm asking for a show of hands because I'm just throwing it all out here this morning. And I'm telling you who I am, and you're thinking, well, we need a new pastor before long. But I, I'm telling you, I know you're out of the, cut out of the same kind of cloth I am. And when you get in the shower, you may be going to work, and, and maybe you're already thinking, you know, I've got a real problem with Fred at work. And I ought to slice his tires. Right? <laughs> I mean, our thoughts take us all kinds of bad, ungodly places. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know where you live. I've been watching you. <laughs> uh, 27 verse 1. Notice what we read. David said to himself. See, here's where he got into trouble. He's talking to himself and he's not telling himself good things. Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Was that true? Uh, person after person told him you're going to be the next king of Israel. Samuel did. Yeah. His friend Jonathan did. Abigail did. Saul himself said, hey, I know you're going to be the next king of Israel. Yep. So he's, he's, his talk is taking him in the wrong direction. There, there's nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Oh, just talking to himself in wrong ways. 
That's why it's probably very important where we have the channels on our car radio set or what kind of disc we put in and thoughts, uh, music that takes us to glorious thoughts of who God is. Or We're memorizing scripture so we can have our thoughts more easily go in that direction. And such a contrast here with David, isn't there? We look at him when, when he's on his rise to prominence and he defeats Goliath and he stands before Goliath and he's just so confident and he says, you come against me with a sword and a javelin and a spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty. What happened to that David? Where has he gone? He's gone the same place that we find our faith going, right? Our struggles, yep. Oh, Application number three, when your faith falters and maybe even you fail and you will repeatedly, then what you need to do is turn back to God. We confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, right? But boy, guilt can be such a heavy burden and we don't turn back to God for, for whatever reasons. We don't turn back. Turn to chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30. What's the setting? What's the setting? Well, David's back in Ziklag. Remember in chapter 27, he was given the city of Ziklag? Yeah. And he leaves the city with his men in chapter 30, and he comes back only to discover, and we talked about this last week, that the city had been destroyed Wives and children taken captive. And David's men are speaking of stoning him. It doesn't get much worse than that. But, but notice what we read there. Then David and the people who were with him, this is verse 4, lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him, for all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But what do we find here? But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I talked about that last week as a de demonstration of his faith. Maybe I'm more correct to say this is a return to his faith. All right? I think this is a return to his faith because he's been in Ziklag and he's been out of Israel for a year and four months. And he's been lying about it. He's been covering it up. He's been killing people to keep it covered up. And now when he's come to the end of himself, he turns back to God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What an encouragement. When your faith falters and you fail, the answer is to turn back to God. And maybe, just maybe like with David here, the difficulty of your circumstances are the very things that turn your heart. So you say, you know what? I don't like living in a pigsty. I'm going back home. Right? That was the prodigal saying, I'm going back home. Wow. Let's close. The name of this gentleman, and he is a thin guy, isn't he? Joe, John Stephen Akwari. Anybody recognize John Stephen Akwari? He is thin, isn't he? But, but, but the year was 1968, the Olympics in Mexico City. He was, I think, one of four Olympians from Tanzania. Tanzania, excuse me, Tanzania. 
And so he was running the marathon. And he, in Mexico City, evidently it's a higher elevation, and so the oxygen is less. And so he had not trained for that, and so he was having problems because of that. And then they had a pile-up running the marathon. I'm thinking a pile-up. How do you have a pile-up running the marathon? It's 26 miles. At what point do you pile up? <laughs> but he did. Look at the Band-Aid on his leg. He had this big gash, dislocated his right knee, dislocated his right knee, bruised his shoulder, yeah. advice to pull out of the race. No, I'm going on. I'm going to keep going. I'm not a quitter. Well, the man who won the race was Mono Waldi. You want to guess where he was from? No, not Mexico. Ethiopia. All the best distance runners, right? Ethiopia. You look at our, our race here, right? Our 10K, aren't they won by guys from Ethiopia? Yeah. Kenya. Oh, Kenya. Okay. All right. I'm wrong. So, but he's from, this guy was from Ethiopia. And it was growing dark in the stadium. He had already finished, been finished for an hour when John Stephen Akwari came into the stadium or came close to the stadium. He's actually about a half a mile out. The race had been done for an hour. And so as he's coming back in, I mean, this, this is quite something. And so evidently television stations, those that had been packing up, come back in and they're, they're watching him. He's going to finish the race. And when it was all said and done, they're going to ask him, aren't they, why did you not, why didn't you quit? Why did you keep going? And his response was this. My country did not send me 5,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And that has become a statement in Olympic history. One of the well-known, there's so many great stories that come out of sports and especially the Olympics. But my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start it. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish the race. And I say to us, brothers and sisters in Christ, oh, to finish the race. Oh, to finish the race. You know, Scripture likens our faith in Christ to a race. 1 Corinthians 9, Romans 12. Back in Romans 12, the encouragement is look at all the others who have gone before you. And that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're looking at David who struggled so. But he got up. And he would fail again. But oh, to have a great faith in the race that we're in as the people of God. That strengthens us. I know you're just like me. You're going to falter. Oh, uh, the wisdom of having some people around you who will help you up when you falter, right? Or to know the promises of God and the character of God that will strengthen you when you falter. But I know you. And if you don't think you'll falter, then I know you better than you know yourself. Because you will falter. And there'll be those times when you probably will fail. And you've got to get back up. You've got to strengthen yourself in the Lord. That's what David did. He got back up and he went on, did he not? To become the greatest king Israel ever had apart from Jesus Christ. Yep. And to be given these great promises that through you, David... Ultimately will come the king who will rule the world.
Jesus Christ. Father, we cry out to you. May we find encouragement from David. Not leave here discouraged and think, boy, if he failed, then what hope is there for me? The, the truth is he failed, he struggled, but he stayed in the race. And so can we. So we're not alone in our struggle. Others here, everybody here struggles living a life that pleases you in the midst of all the troubles and challenges that come our way. Oh, we cry out for your grace. Thank you that we, we see with David, even with Nabal, that... Uh, You protected him from some of his own foolishness. Oh, we ask that of you, your grace and your mercy. But we cry out to you. We want to run the race and run it well. And when we stumble, we want to keep going. And when we fall, we want to get up and keep going. Father, I'm reminded of the man who had a child who was very sick, a son, I believe it was, and came to your son and wanted healing. And he said, I think you can do it. And Jesus challenged him. He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. We believe. We're here this morning because we believe in the great truth of who Jesus is. But help us in our times of unbelief. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.